0: So let's get up to where we are now, okay? We just, we are looking at the impact of our actions, seeing how we have this incredible power of revealing the divine core in everything. This is a world that hides the divine. It's an absolute illusion. It could say, I am, I made myself, there's nothing else besides me. And our purpose for coming down into this world was so that we can reveal the divine core in everything, that a world that hides Hashem screams out that there's nothing else besides Him. That's the reason why the world was created. That's the reason why every single soul spark came down to be enclosed in a body is for this, reveal the hidden truth, the essence of everything, that there's nothing else besides Hashem. We looked at the mitzvah of tzedakah, of charity, and we saw how that has the most power in bringing up the totality of the vital soul, and then we said, "Wait, there is another mitzvah about which the sage about which the sages said it outweighs them all, and that's Torah study. How could we say that?" And the Alter Rebbe said, "Because there is something unique in Torah study that doesn't exist anywhere else, and that is, while all mitzvahs of action employ the body, employ the vital soul." They make use of the external garment of the vital soul, and that's the garment of action. But Torah study becomes more intimate with the animal soul. Torah study employs thought and speech of the vital soul, and that has a profound influence on the vital soul. It's not just doing something external to itself. It's taking something in which is much closer to it and it has an influence so that now the vital soul actually starts to identify with the Torah. And this is huge in our mission in making this world a home for Hashem because it's one thing to keep drawing down the divine and everything into all of our physical actions. But if we don't identify, if our animal soul does not align, that means that there's a key component missing here. It means that while Hashem is here, but you can't call it a home because there's no connectedness. Once the speech and the thought of the vital soul are employed in Torah study, there is a much more intimate connection. There's an influence happening and the vital soul itself starts to align with the Torah truth, starts to align with Hashem's wisdom. And this is huge in making a home for Hashem, a place where he is intimately connected. And then the al Rebbe started to say something else. He said, it's not just the inner garments of the vital soul that are employed in the mitzvah of Torah study, but actually the essence of the animal soul is transformed in Torah study. And that becomes so hard for us to understand based on everything we learned in Tanya. We learned that the difference between a tzaddik, a righteous person, and a benoni, the intermediate man, the man who struggles, is that the tzaddik can actually transform his vital soul. So it becomes another force for good. While the intermediate man, the benoni, is perfect in his thought, speech, and action, is perfect in his soul's manner of expression, in his soul's garments. But when it comes to the essence of the animal soul, he doesn't have that choice. He cannot transform it. And yet here the Altarabba tells us that he could. He can't transform the totality of the essence of the vital soul, but he can transform the intellect of the vital soul. And then he starts to tell us why. And this is what we started last week. And he said, because the evil in the emotions is much more deeply entrenched than the evil in the intellect. And we looked at that and we realized that emotions are more about me and intellect is more about the truth. So intellect is more refined and more easily elevated, while emotions are much more ego-centered, so there's more evil within them, and they're much more difficult to transform, and therefore the Benoni can't transform them. But this reality of the emotions being much more deeply entrenched in evil is sourced somewhere higher. In this world, intellect is on a higher level. But in the upper realms, the emotions have more godly revelation. And because the emotions of the vital soul down here derive their nurture from holiness, the holiness in the emotions is greater. And it translates down here when it becomes klipa as evil being more deeply entrenched in the emotions. Why? So, here we're going to visit the Kabbalistic doctrine of Shvira's HaKalim, the shattering of the vessels. Oh, Jill, you had a question. I hate to interrupt, but could you give me the definition of evil? Yes, we did this specifically last week. But the very basic definition of evil is disconnected from its root. So when we see evil we think of something terrible, people behaving so badly. When we look at the root of all evil where it all stems, you know, two paths diverge, right? But at one place they are so so close you can hardly tell the difference. Where is that first split? Where is that first place that evil happens? It's that disconnect. It's a sense of self separate from Hashem. We gave it a treatment last week, but I can visit it again after class, please enter. Okay. So let's look at the Kabbalistic doctrine of Shriras Hakalim, the shattering of the vessels. This world is preceded, generally, by three higher spiritual worlds. This world is the world of Asiya. Above our worlds are Yatsira, Bria, and Atzilas. So we usually say Atzilas, Bria, Yetzira, Asiya, coming from up down, but we're making reference of it coming from below, up. So we're in the world of Asiya, the world of action. Above us is the world of Yetzirah. Above that is the world of Bria. And higher than that is the world of Atzilos. Now, when we say this world is preceded by other worlds, we don't mean time-wise. We mean in spiritual evolution. So those worlds are higher up in this spiritual. Chain and the highest of all those worlds is the world of Atsilas. Our chain of worlds, but specifically the world of Atsilas, is called Ailam Hatikun, the world of rectification. Kabbalah teaches us that before this world was another world, again, not in time, in spirituality, and that is called Ilam Hatihu. The world of chaos. This is hinted to you in the verse, the beginning of creation, where it says, sayhu The world was astonishingly empty. The world word, sayhu, the world was in a state of chaos. And it is alluded to in the words of our sages in the Midrash when they said that Hashem was, The Umaharivan. He was creating worlds and destroying them. Arizal teaches us that it isn't that he was making you know, physical worlds before our own, saying, this is not good, crumple it up and throw it in the garbage. This is a different world. It's a world of chaos. It's a world that is in the mode of destruction and chaos. Why is there chaos in that world? Kabbalah describes the state of that world as having been Aires mirubim, mu'atem. huge lights, scant vessels. That means that the light was too great for the vessels. Let's look at light and vessels. What does light and vessels mean? Light is the divine energy, the manifestation of the divine. Vessels is that which contains and expresses that divine energy in our own human experience, that would be soul, the light, body, the vessel. Body expresses the light, the energy of the soul. It channels it and it also constricts it. What happens when the light is too great for the vessels? Like, let's look at our body, right? Which part of our soul sees? Our whole soul sees? Which part of our soul hears? Our entire soul hears? But it's but as it comes to be invested in the body, the soul now expresses different powers through different organs that are vessels specifically for that power. So, the power of vision of the soul is clothed within the eye, the power to hear of the soul is clothed within the ear, and these are the vessels for that power, those powers of the soul, the vessels for the lights of the soul. What happens? if you take a very great light and expose somebody's eye to that, much greater than their eye can handle. So it's not just that, you know what, this didn't light, light didn't help anymore. And it's certainly not like, wow, so much light. Now I see everything amazing. No, actually that incredibly bright light could be damaging and ruin the eyesight. The same thing with tremendous loud sound can ruin the ear. Or, God forbid, somebody giving too much knowledge to a young child's mind. It's not that the child now becomes smarter. It actually could be damaging to the child's mind. Or let's look at the account in the Talmud. The Talmud tells us, Our ba'a nichnasu four entered the orchard. Four great Torah scholars were exposed to the deepest secrets of the Torah. The only one who made it out okay was Rabbi Akiva. He was able to handle that exposure. While Ben Azai passed away. Ben Zayma lost his mind. So it wasn't like these secrets didn't only enhance his mind. It actually did the opposite for him. And so much so to the extent that Acher, Alisha Ben Avuya, was exposed to this tremendous holiness instead of himself, Then sharing holiness and relating a higher level of holiness, he became a heretic. Exactly the opposite of what he experienced. He experienced profound holiness. He ended up becoming a heretic. So this is what it means when there's too much light for the small vessels. The vessels shatter. They cannot contain the light. This world, on the other hand, the world of Tikkun, starting from the world of Atzilus, which is supposed to rectify that original state, is a world of great vessels, and small lights. Now, of course, Hashem didn't make a mistake. God forbid to say that. What does that mean? Hashem is making worlds, destroying them. He puts two great lights in the vessels, and the vessels shatter. What does that mean? This was all part of the divine plan. Remember, we learned that the purpose of creation is that there should be a reality that denies Hashem, but eventually will come to reveal and manifest him a place where his very essence will be at home. In order for a world of klipa to come about, a world which overtly denies Hashem, says, I am, there's nothing else besides me, that can't be a normal evolution. That can't be a normal chain of events, one from another. That can't happen like that. From holiness never devolves impurity. If a a professor wants to teach something brilliant to a first grader, he could. He could take his great idea and he could bring it down stage after stage so that the little child understands his idea. But he could never bring down his idea so low that you could come to touch it with your hand. Why? Because the idea is spiritual and the sense of touch grasps that which is physical. And from the spiritual idea, no matter how low you're going to bring it down, could never come This physical thing. At least not by regular way of evolution. So in order for there to be a world. Which hides the divine. It couldn't come through a normal process. It couldn't come by steps and grades. It had to come by collapse. This world of chaos collapsed. And from that great world of chaos. Fell sparks. Which become the reality of Klipa in our world. Klipa just like everything else, gets its life from holy, gets its life energy from holiness, not in the direct way, but in the way of fallen sparks. Our animal soul, being sourced as it is in the klipa, gets its energy from the world of Tohu, the world of chaos. Remember, anything that is Klepa gets its energy from the world of chaos. So let's look at our animal soul now getting its energy from the world of chaos. Its emotions get its energy from the emotions of the world of chaos. In that world, the emotions have tremendous light, much more light than do the intellect, than does the intellect. The primary shattering of the vessels was within the sefirot, which correspond to the emotions. There wasn't that level of shattering when it came to the intellect. So here in this world, the intellect is on a higher level, but that's because its source had less light. Here in this world, the emotions, the evil is more deeply entrenched, but that's because in the source, there's so much more light. And the greater the light, the greater the fall. So this explains why, yes, we can never transform the essence of the animal soul, so long as we're not at tzaddik. But there is a part of the animal soul we can transform, and that is the intellect, because the evil is much less entrenched when it comes to the intellect of the animal soul than when it comes to the emotions of the animal soul. So that's what we got up to until now. We looked at the incredible advantage of Torah study, and that is that it employs the inner garments of the soul, the thought, and the speech, and it even can transform the essence of the animal soul, the intellect of the animal soul. But the author I was going to say, everything I told you until now about how incredible Torah study is, is amazing. But there is something about Torah study that is way beyond anything I told you until now. All of these advantages are huge, but here comes this advantage that surpasses anything I ever told you about Torah study. Okay, so in my booklet, we're on the bottom of page 17. Zayis v'ayda cheres v'hi ha'ayla al kulana. al Aside from this, there is another far more important aspect to the superiority of Torah study over all the other mitzvahis. Al pi mashenizkar la'el b'shem ha-tikunim. The ramach Pikudin, hein ramach de dimalka. Based on the statement quoted above in chapter twenty three from Tikkunei Zohar, that the two hundred and forty eight positive commandments are the two hundred and forty eight limbs of the king. So the Zohar calls the Mitzvahs the limbs of Hashem. What does that mean? Ev Job says Mibsari Eleka from my flesh I behold Hashem. The Torah says, Hashem says in the account of creation, Adam Kid kidmusenu." Let's make man in our image and in our likeness. The Shulah explains, Kid kidmusenu in our image, in our likeness." The Tzlam is the soul. The Demus is the body. Body and soul of the human being are made in the likeness of Hashem. If we contemplate our own body, we can understand. So much about the divine. So let's look at our own limbs, because we're call- the Zohar is calling the mitzvahs the limbs of Hashem. In order to understand what does this mean, a limb of Hashem. Let's look at our own limbs. What is a limb? A limb is something of us which expresses our soul in this world. And each of the limbs expresses our soul a different level. Of the life force of our soul. Some of them express a higher level of life force. Some of them express a lower level of life force. Let's contrast, for example, the hand with the legs. To do tasks with our hands requires elegance, requires precision. We can write, we can draw. Our legs don't have that same level of elegance and precision. So this, therefore, tells us That the hands express a higher level of soul power, of life force, than the legs do. We can evaluate one limb to another. The mitzvahs express Hashem's life energy as it were in this world. Kabbalah teaches us that in that highest world of Atzilas, in those Holy Sifi wrote, there are 248 levels. These 248 levels of these highest Sifirot are expressed in this world through the mitzvot. If you ever want to hug Hashem, you do a mitzvah. That's what a mitzvah is. Grabbing on to the limbs of the king It is the most amazing, powerful thing. So we're looking at our own body and we're noticing how our limbs express our life force. And then we're translating it over to the divine reality. The mitzvahs, which the Tikkuni Zohar calls the limbs of the king, express all different levels of the divine energy. Just as a limb of the human body is a receptacle for a corresponding soul faculty, so is each mitzvah a receptacle for a corresponding expression of the divine will. Concerning Torah, however, it is written in Tikkuni Zohar, Torah and the Holy One blessed be he, are entirely one, unlike them its vote, which are merely limbs. The Alter Rebbe now elucidates the difference. Just as, for example, in the case of a human being, the vitality in his two hundred and forty-eight year organs bears no comparison or similarity to the vitality in his brain, meaning the intellect, which is divided into the three faculties of chokhmah, Bina, and Da'at. So we're looking at our limbs. Some limbs express a higher level of soul force. Some limbs express a lower level of soul force. But then there's the intellect. The intellect, as the Altar Rebbe writes in the 51st chapter in Tanya, is the principal abode for the life force of the soul, and from there it is directed to the limbs of the body. The intellect houses as if really the essence of the soul. The brains, if you look in the Mishnah where they illuminate, where they enumerate the 248 limbs, the brains are not part of those 248 limbs. The 248 limbs all express levels of soul energy. But the intellect expresses the essence of the soul. At this point, there are no levels. At this point, this is as if the soul itself. So the mitzvahs are compared to the life energy within the limbs, but the Torah, the Torah is compared to the life energy as if Hashem's life energy, that's in the intellect. What does that mean? Every limb of the body is of course bound to the soul which provides it with life. Yet they are two separate entities which have been joined together. It is otherwise, however, in the relationship between one's intellect and his soul. The intellect is an extension and a part of the soul itself. Thus, its unity with the soul is not that of two separate entities which have been joined, but of two components of a whole. This difference between the limbs and the intellect illustrates the difference between the other mitzvot and Torah study as the Altar Rebbe Now continues. Just as in the case of a human being, so too, by way of analogy, allowing for the qualification that any comparison between human and divine traits must be distant, however, by myriads of degrees. And this is a curious expression that the Alt-Rebbe uses quite a few times in Tanya. Rabbi Steinsaltz points this out and says, What does this mean? Is it kachamamish or is it Derach mashal? Kachamamish means exactly so. If it's exactly so, then it's not by way of analogy. On the other hand, if we're saying by way of analogy, then it is not exactly so. So it seems self-contradictory. What is the meaning of this? So he explains like this. Everything in this world mirrors higher realities. Our body, as it is, is exactly mirroring the supernal realms. Exactly. Kachamamish. Exactly so. However, when we wanna translate it into the higher realities, we have to remember that these physical limbs are an expression in this world. In higher worlds, there is no physicality. And in that respect, it is only by way of analogy. So it's exactly so. Our limbs, our brain, this whole model really mirrors the supernal reality. But as it is expressed physically, it's only by way of analogy this is so distant so so distant from the truth from from the reality that it is as it exists in the higher realms Is it with regard to the illumination of the ain't-so-flight clothed in mitzvot of action compared to the illumination of the ain't-so-flight clothed in the Chabad faculties of one immersed in the wisdom of Torah? An illumination commensurate with the level of each man's intellect and his grasp of Torah. To the extent that his intellect grasps the Torah which he studies, is it united with godliness with a unity comparable to that of one's intellect with his soul? So when we do a mitzvah, we are uniting with that level of limbs. When we study Torah, do you know what we draw down upon our animal soul? When we study Torah, we draw down upon our animal soul, the Chachma binadat, the three intellectual faculties as if of Hashem, Hashem's very essence, this highest level of manifestation gets drawn down upon our vital soul in the act of studying Torah. There's a, such a huge difference between the life force that is expressed in the mind than the life force as it expressed in the limbs. Rabbi Steinsaltz puts it like this. He says, the life force in the mind, even of a fool, is so much greater than the life force of the hand, even of a genius. This illustrates the vast difference between life energy, between soul essence, as it is expressed in the mind, then how it is expressed in the limbs. When we study Torah, we pull down upon upon our vital soul this essential life energy of Hashem. This does not happen in any other mitzvah. Now, of course, we have to clarify and point out that when we do mitzvahs, it brings tremendous benefit both to divine soul, as the Alter Rebbe writes in Chapter 4 of Tanya, that when a person does a mitzvah, his divine soul is totally bound up with Hashem in a bond of life from head to foot, as well as for the vital soul. When a person does a mitzvah, as we learned earlier in the chapter, the vital soul is bound, united, elevated, actually in the reverse order, elevated bound and furthermore united with Hashem in the act of a mitzvah. This is all 100% true. There's an incredible unity that happens in the act of any mitzvah. That's what a mitzvah is. Mitzvah comes from the word tzavtah. Tzavtah v'chibur. A unity, a bond. Every mitzvah forges a bond between us and Hashem. But nothing compares to what happens when we study Torah. Yes, we talked about using the inner garments of our vital soul. And yes, we talked about even transforming the intellect of the vital soul. But this surpasses everything. This is what the al said, V'hi ha'aila al-kulana, surpasses everything. It draws down literally the intellect of Hashem, which is His very essence, upon our vital soul. Hearing, then, lies the superiority of Torah study over other mitzvot, even over charity. Torah study affects a much higher level of unity with godliness than do the mitzvot of action. Okay, so this sounds absolutely amazing. Not only do we use our inner garments of our soul, not only do we transform our intellect, but we even draw down this highest level of divine light upon our vital soul. That sounds very good, but how do we study Torah? We study Torah, look at a passage in the Talmud, "Shnayim Echazim Betalas. Two people grasp a garment. They're fighting. Who does it belong to? This one says it belongs to me. This one says it belongs to me. I understand that we're using our mind for this. But how could you say that this expresses the highest level of divine light? This logical argument presented in the Talmud. And this is what the Alter Rebbe addresses now. Although one grasped Torah study, only as it is clothed in physical terms, meaning the law concerning two men who clutch a garment or one who trades a cow for a donkey. How then can it be said that through study of such laws, one attains this lofty level of unity with godliness? So this is an expression that appears in the work of the great Kabbalist, the Rama Mifano, Rabbi Menachem Azaria of Fano. And he says that the Tyra... The Torah describes the supernal realms and merely alludes to this lowly, earthly plane. You know, you could think we look at the Torah, we read the stories of the Torah, we read the account in creation, we read what happened, Joseph and his brothers, the exodus from Egypt, and when we study these deeply enough, we can find some allusions to realities as they exist in the supernal realms. But actually, that isn't so. In fact, the Talmud tells us that the Torah preceded the world. If it preceded the world, that means it's way beyond any physicality. It exists before physicality. The Talmud calls the Torah, a cherished treasure hidden for you. This is something that is intimate with Hashem. This is something that is way beyond anything that our mind can grasp. It speaks of profoundly lofty, sublime, spiritual ideas way beyond the human mind. And then it comes down, contraction, constriction, all the way down to our physical world until it clothes itself in the Talmudic argument two guys fighting over a garment. Okay, so yes. True, our our mind is working here. Yes, true, our intellect is involved. Our intellect is getting transformed, but are you going to tell me that I'm drawing down Hashem's intellect? This is only an expression in physical terms. It comes from a place so much higher. How could you say that? And the Alter Rebbe says like this: Hare ha'tyra nimshala lemayim sheyardim imimakim gavaya chulei k'mayish inesbara lael. Yet the Torah has been likened to water descending from a high place. The water on the lower level is exactly the same as it was on the higher level. Similarly, the laws of Torah, although they have descended to deal with ordinary physical situations, still consists of Hashem's will and wisdom. Thus, in studying Torah, one is united with Hashem's will and wisdom and thereby with God himself as explained above in chapter 4. So the Torah has been compared to water. Water, even when it comes from a very high place to a very low place, the essence doesn't change. It's still the same. As opposed to, let's say, light leaving its source, the further it gets away from its source, the weaker the strength of the light. But the Torah is compared to water in this situation. The place has changed, but the essence has not. So yes, it is clothed in physical terms, dealing with human situations. But when we grasp it, we grasp the essence of Hashem himself. It has descended, but has not changed. Its pristine essence, its pure core of being the intellect of Hashem remains the same. Could you imagine? Like, we should sit with this. We can't just move on. This is absolutely unbelievable. The altar says clearly, this surpasses everything I told you about Torah study. In this act of Torah study, we draw down the very intellect of Hashem himself, meaning Hashem's essence, upon our vital soul. This tremendous manifestation is unparalleled. And this happens only in the study of Torah. So you would think, okay, we've got to study Torah all day. We should really never do anything else. But the al says like this, that's not the law. The law is that if you have to do a mitzvah, you interrupt your Torah studies. And why could why would that be? So remember, the purpose of creation is creating a home for Hashem here. A home for Hashem is primarily achieved through mitzvot of action because they engage our body. They engage the garment of action of our vital soul. And they engage the physicality of this world. This world has to be transformed, and that's through mitzvot of action. (laughs) Nevertheless, notwithstanding the superior level of unity with godliness attained only by Torah, our sages have said, the essential thing is not study, but deed. It is also written, this day, meaning during, our life in this world, the all important thing is to do them, the mitzvot. So the Torah says, and our sages explain today means life in this world. And the expression is, to do them. It isn't to fulfill them, it is to do them. And that's because mitzvahs of action take precedence. And the halacha rules that one must interrupt Torah study to perform a mitzvah of action when it cannot be fulfilled by others. So the law is like this. Somebody is studying Torah, but there's a mitzvah that it cannot be performed by others. The altar gives the example in Hilchas Talmud Torah of somebody who is more influential when it comes to motivate other people to, do, to give tzedakah. So such a person has to interrupt his studies so he can help other people give tzedakah and that explains the phenomenon how it is throughout Jewish history that these great sages were the ones to go fundraising for the poor in the land of Israel to sustain the yeshivas it's like you're studying torah you're you're teaching other people don't stop this is the most important thing send an agent but they're going to listen to the torah scholar much more there he's going to be much more vot- motivating So therefore, he needs to interrupt his Torah studies to go and collect. I mean, there's the famous story of Rav Moshe Galanti, Rabbi Moshe Galanti. He was a Kabbalist and he was chosen when there was a terrible famine in the land of Israel to be sent to Constantinople, where there was a generous Jewish community to collect funds for the poor in the land of Israel. As he was traveling this crazy trip overseas, they neared the port of Constantinople and they saw tremendous chaos, people running for shelter, the military on guard. And the captain of the ship said, I'm so sorry, but this doesn't look safe. I take responsibility for the safety of the passengers and we will not be docking at Constantinople. And Rabbi Moshe Galanti said, look, I was sent as a messenger from the people of Israel. I need to arrive at Constantinople. Could you please send me on a small ferry boat? And they did. They wrote him to the shores of Constantinople, dropped him off and went back. But no longer, no sooner than he alighted the ship, somebody came screaming at him and said, two lions have escaped from the Sultan's zoo and everybody's running for shelter, you better run. And all of a sudden you hear the blood-curdling roar of a lion and everybody goes dashing, but he stays still. The lion approaches him and suddenly crouches and he takes the lion by the ear and starts walking towards the king's palace. Guards are standing on the rooftops, telling him, this way, this way, go this way. And he meets the other lion, takes this lion by the ear. They look like two little, nice, docile pets, takes them all the way to the king's cage and locks them in. And the king said, what are you, a magician? A sorcerer? And he said, no, no. Our Torah forbids magic. But the Torah tells us, that we fight our evil inclination we have the godly image and therefore the really how it is is that all animals should be afraid of man because man is created in the image of hashem but if man gives into his evil inclination he no longer reflects that divine image and the animals are not afraid of him instead is afraid of the animals but he said all my life i have battled my evil inclination And so the lions were afraid of me. And that was a very successful fundraising trip for Rabbi Moshe Galanti because the Sultan himself gave him treasures and he went back to the land of Israel. And this just illustrates the point that a man of his caliber, it seems like the Torah study that he achieved and he accomplished should never have been interrupted for him to go make a trip. But obviously his power was greater than others in motivating people. And therefore, he had to interrupt his Torah study because at the end of the day, we have to remember what's our mission. Our mission is creating a home for Hashem in the lowest realms. That means using the physicality of this world in service of Him and thereby revealing its deep core that it is only an expression of the divine. That is the goal here. So when it comes between creating Hashem's home in the physicality of this world, or drawing down this incredible, supremely lofty divine light, we have to attend to our mission. We have to make this place a home for Hashem. And therefore, we interrupt our Torah studies in order to do a mitzvah that nobody else can do. And there are certain mitzvahs that are a personal obligation. Nobody can put on tefillin for you. Nobody can eat in a sukkah for you. There are certain things you just, nobody can light Shabbos candles for you. There are certain things that you just have to do by yourself. It's a personal obligation. You need to eat matzah for yourself. You need to shake lulav and etzer for yourself. So when it comes to personal obligations or mitzvahs that have to be fulfilled by you because nobody else can do them, being the 10th man for the minion, for example, all of these things require the physical person, and for that, a person needs to interrupt their Torah studies. The Red explains this. For this, the active performance of mitzvot is man's entire purpose, the purpose for which he was created, and for which his soul descended to this world. So we have to keep our eye on the target. You know, it's so easy to get lost. The target is... Making a home for Hashem in this lowest world. That's the reason why the world was created. This is the reason why our soul came down. We can never forget why our soul came down. So that God may have an abode precisely in the lowest realms. To turn darkness, to turn the darkness of this world into the light of holiness. And the al illustrates this with verses from the Torah. So that God's glory will fill specifically the entire physical world. And all flesh will behold godliness together as was explained above. So it wasn't just like, so every mind will perceive the divine. It's so that so all flesh, the actual physical flesh... The physicality of this world will perceive the divine. And that happens chiefly through mitzvah performance. Why? What does mitzvah performance have above Torah study? Is that it engages the body and the animal soul. And it engages the very physicality of this world. And when we use the physicality of this world in service of him, we draw down his light into it we reveal its deep inner core and we are making this lowest realms a home for Hashem. Thus, the goal of making this world an abode for Hashem is achieved primarily through mitzvot of action. Therefore, when presented with the opportunity of performing a mitzvah that others cannot fulfill, one must fulfill this mitzvah even at the cost of interrupting his Torah studies so that God's desire for an abode in the lower realms be realized. If, however... The mitzvah that clashes with one's Torah study can be fulfilled by others. The choice is no longer between respecting or ignoring God's desire for an abode. Whether he suspends his Torah study to perform the mitzvah or continues his studies and leaves the mitzvah to others, this objective will be realized regardless. The choice is now between studying Torah and actively performing a mitzvah. And here, Torah study prevails because of the superior level of unity that it affects between the Torah student's soul and God. So up until now, we said, when nobody else could do the mitzvah, keep your eye on the target. You're making a home for Hashem. You have to be the one to do the mitzvah. But what if Hashem's home is being attended to? What if somebody else will do the mitzvah? What if somebody else can be just as motivating and inspiring to get other people to to give tzedakah? What if somebody else can be the one to give truma, for instance, or build your sukkah for you? If you can have someone build your sukkah for you, then you can sit and learn the laws of sukkah better. And that sounds so funny. Why? Because anyway, Hashem's home is being made. You're not ignoring the greater cause. When the greater cause is anyway happening, there's something amazing that's happening in Torah study for your vital soul that is not happening in any other way. Ma hera. On the other hand, if the mitzvah can be performed by others, one does not interrupt Torah study to perform it, even though the whole Torah is, after all, only an explanation of the mitzvot of action. This is baffling. The Alter rebbe raises this quandary in one of his Hasidic discourses, and he said, why would it be? That somebody who is studying the law, uh, the laws of Truma separating certain tithes from his produce can go and send an agent to take care of that for him to separate the tithes from his produce so that he can go and deal with the laws. Why should you deal with the explanation when you can actually carry it out? But now we understand. Not just that. When we don't interrupt our Torah study, it's not just when we're studying practical laws. In this situation, you might understand because you can say, okay, when he studies the laws of trumes and maizres, when he studies the laws of giving tithes, he is now enabled to keep many, many more halachot. He has more knowledge. He can keep much more halachot. So I understand he'll send an agent so he can be more proficient in the laws. But what if you're studying something that has no immediate practical value? supposedly. What if you're studying the laws of sacrifices? Kachim and is; the, These are the examples that the altar of it gives in the laws of Torah study. The temple should be built immediately. And until the temple is built, those laws don't have any immediate application. So shouldn't you interrupt that to go do a mitzvah? And the answer is no. Because the value of Torah study is inherent. It's the Torah study itself that has this tremendous value. What is Torah? Torah is the life force of the divine intellect. It's the same as the energy, the life energy of the soul, which is in our own intellect. You cannot compare the life energy in the intellect to the life energy in the limbs. In the very study of Torah, we are drawing down this life energy from Chachma Bin Adat, the divine intellect no matter what area of Torah that we study and when we delve deeply into it and we employ our minds to understand it we are drawing down this sublime unbelievable incredible light way beyond transcending anything else that could ever be drawn down to this world so if someone else is anyway attending to the fact that Hashem's home has to be made in these physical realms then it is our job now to pull down this most incredibly profound level of divine manifestation over our vital soul. This is because the Torah is the level of Chabad, of the blessed Ensof, and hence, when one is engaged in studying it, he draws upon himself an infinitely greater illumination of the blessed Ensof light, greater both in its illuminative powers and in its higher quality than the illumination and influence that one draws down upon his soul through mitzvot, which are merely organs of the king. What emerges from this discussion is that the effect of mitzvot consists primarily of the elevation of one's body and the physical world in general. So when we're looking at the two, where do they each stand out? What's their unique feature? The unique feature of the mitzvot is is that they elevate the body, they elevate the physicality of this world. The effect of Torah study, on the other hand, is to unite the soul with God. The main advantage is that it is uniting the soul, the vital soul, pulling down this incredible divine light much higher than anything else over the vital soul. Accordingly, the Rebbe explains the following Talmudic statement. The Zehu Sha'amarav Sheishas, Chadai Nafshai, Lach Karai, Lach Tanai. This is what Rav Sheshis meant when he said, Rejoice, my soul. For you do I study scripture. For you do I study Mishnah. Why didn't he say that every time he did a mitzvah? Why didn't he say, Rejoice, my soul. For you I put on tefillin. For you did I shake lulav and esriq. Why after a mitzvah does he did he not make this exclamation? And after he studied Torah, he said, Rejoice, my soul. I studied Torah for your sake. Now we understand. For the soul, the unity of God, with God attained through Torah, scripture and Mishnah, is greater than that attained through mitzvot. He therefore addressed these words to it. For your sake, I learn. As is explained elsewhere at length. Okay, so let's sum up what we said until now. And that is that Torah study has an incredible transformative power. It's incredible because it uses the inner garments of the animal soul. It's incredible because it actually has a transformative power over the essence of the animal soul, engaging its intellect. But way beyond all of these incredible advantages of Torah study is another unique feature. And that is Torah study draws down the level of divine light that comes from the intellect, as it were, the chachma Bin of Hashem himself, which is like the essence. Mitzvahs are compared to the limbs of Hashem, as it were. You cannot compare the soul force that is in the limbs to the soul force that is in the intellect. And that's how we can measure the difference between the divine light that we elicit through mitzvah performance to the divine light that we elicit through Torah study. When we study Torah, we literally pull down this superior divine light of Hashem's very essence upon our vital soul. And that's why every time he studied Torah, Rav Sheshush would exclaim to his soul, Rejoice! I learned Torah for you. So we're closing class today, and I'm opening up now for questions and discussion. So good to have everybody back who hasn't been on last week.